0: to the I Want to Know podcast. I'm Josh Spector and I am your host. If you don't know who I am, I'm the creator of the For The Interested newsletter, which you can check out at fortheinterested.com. If you're new here, this podcast exists to help creative entrepreneurs get their questions answered. Here's how it usually works. In each episode, a different guest comes on and asks me three questions. Then we have a 10-minute conversation about each of them, and that's it. No fluff, lots of actionable tips and strategies you can put to use. But today's episode is going to be just as actionable and maybe even more helpful, but a bit different because today we're going to flip the script instead of someone asking me questions i've brought on a special guest whose expertise i want to learn from and i'll ask him the three questions today's guest is david c baker david is an author speaker and advisor to entrepreneurial creatives worldwide he's written six books advised a thousand plus firms and keynoted conferences in 30 plus countries His work has been discussed in dozens of international publications. The New York Times referred to him as the expert's expert, and he co-hosts the most listened to podcast in the creative services field, which is called the Two Bobs Podcast. So with that in mind, hey, David, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Good to be here. I just flew in late last night. You're my first victim today, so I'm excited.
0: I appreciate it. And I have to say, I'm really excited to talk to you because I'm actually going to hold up your book. Let's see if I can get this on camera somehow. The Business of Expertise, which is one of your books, and I read it a few years ago and it is absolutely one of my favorite books. I recommend it to people all the time, not just for consultants, but anyone that I think is, again, in the business of expertise and selling sort of knowledge and the things that they know, which for a huge part of my audience, including myself, is really kind of the root of what they're doing, whether whether they're selling courses or t- getting clients or whatever they're doing, it's really building a business around what they know. So I am super, first of all, I highly recommend that book to anybody that's listening, but I'm super excited to pick your brain on some specific stuff in the book and also new things that, that you've learned and developed over the past couple of years. So let's get right into it. The first thing I want to know is you offer a service where you do a new business audit and it includes a review of three key elements for your clients. One is their positioning. Two is their service offering design, and three is their lead generation. And now obviously there are a million variables and you do a deep dive with clients and each case is unique, but I thought it'd be curious to hear in general, your single best tip for each of these categories. So we'll take them one by one. Let's start with positioning. When someone comes to you and says, I want you to audit my business, I'm a consultant, or I sell my expertise in some way, and what would sort of be your single best tip to them in terms of position?
1: Yeah, this is one where you almost have to answer that question based on where somebody is on their own journey, because Mm -hmm. in the early days, they build their firm, whether it's just them or other people too, they build their firm by saying yes a lot, and so they're always drawing an opportunity like a magnet, and they try to figure out what to do with it, how to make something out of it, but then they don't make that transition to a tighter positioning where they have to say no a lot. And so when I usually get them, they are right at that point where they realize almost, they don't want to realize it. They know it's true, but it makes them uncomfortable. They're going to have to start saying no to a lot of things. But that feels terrifying to them because they're afraid they're not going to have enough work, right? So it's (laughs) recognizing the whole The fact that positioning is not about the work you say yes to, positioning is more about the work that you say no to, and how do you get past that and thrive? So that would probably be the biggest thing I'd say.
0: That's great. And I've so found that for myself. I've been full-time sort of consulting on my own for about six and a half years now. And yeah, at first it was like, oh, I can do that. I was saying yes to everything that I could do. Oh, you want Facebook ads? I could do Facebook ads for you. And eventually you sort of learn exactly what you were saying. Like, well, yeah, I could do it, but that doesn't necessarily mean I want to do it or it's the right it's the right thing. Right. Along those lines, what advice would you have for somebody about how they figure out what to say no to? So
1: again, everybody has the right instinct here. They know what they should say no to. The reason they don't say no to it is because they don't have enough other opportunity lined up. They know the issue is not knowledge. The issue is the courage. And it's very hard to create enough courage unless you have something else you can say yes to. I find it very interesting. So there's one of these instincts we have as entrepreneurs that we can't say no to opportunity. It's almost like we have to stand in front of the mirror and practice our lips because we genetically can't say no. And so you have to think about, okay, what am I going to be able to – what kind of courage am I going to need in order to say no to something else? But when you're crafting a positioning, you're not making something up. You're essentially looking at all of the possibilities, and sometimes there's just one, sometimes there's three or four, and you're saying, ah, now I'm going to focus on this – And nothing changes the next day. You're not all of a sudden smarter about this choice that you've made. What it is a license to learn. So a positioning decision is saying, okay, from here forward, I am going to focus on something. I'm going to get better at what I do much quicker than I would have if I didn't. Because in the past, I just have to be good enough at all of these things. A positioning decision says, I'm going to start focusing here and get better at a much higher rate than I would otherwise.
0: Yeah, great. So let's go to the second thing you do in the new business audit. Let's talk about what would your single best tip be when it comes to service offering design? And maybe start by just explaining what you mean by service offering design for people who maybe aren't quite sure what that is. Sure. So that
1: service offering design relates to what you do for these clients that are best fit clients from a positioning standpoint. So the positioning question answers, who are your great clients? The service offering design question answered, what are you going to do for them? So I would say there's, I'll give you the one tip, but I'll give you the three ways to think about service offering design. First is you need to have a fairly packaged way to start with clients. So when a prospect says, yeah, let's do this, you shouldn't have to think, oh, what do I do next? There should always be a regular way to start with a client. Second, and this is where the key, this is the one big tip I would give you is that whatever service offering design. You offer to clients, whatever those choices are, most of your clients should use most of those services most of the time. So think of your service offering design menu, all the different four or five things you might do for them as more of a fixed price menu where they just go through it step by step. Every once in a while, somebody skips the middle course or something, but most of the time. So then your service offering design question should reach all the way back to positioning because you shouldn't even be taking on clients where you don't know what that decision path is going to look like. So the best tip there is construct your service offering design menu as a fixed price menu and not a buffet menu or a cheesecake factory menu where everybody's just choosing because then you're just an order taker rather than guiding the relationship.
0: And along those lines, do you see that menu as something where the packages are uniquely different? So for example, one packages, you get ABC service, the other packages, you get DEF service, or is it package one is ABC, package two is ABCDEF? Are stacking or are they alternate options, or does it matter? You want to have certain modules
1: of what you're really good at, and then you want to combine them in a way that's unique to you. So combine them in how, based on how you understand things to go. So I'm not gonna work with a client long-term unless I always do a benchmarking first, because I wanna know what we need to fix and how we're gonna measure it as we fix it. So you're trying to put those things in place in a way that sometimes the client doesn't see it, but your positioning is not just about what you do for whom, your positioning is also about how you do it. And that's where the service offering design comes in. So you could have two almost identically positioned firms but the process of working with them should look very different. That's where the service offering design comes in because you should have a perspective on how things should be solved and in what order, what goes next and so on. So I think process is really important. Yeah.
0: Great. So now obviously with all of this, none of it works if you don't have lead coming in. So the third piece of your audit is the lead generation piece. So let's talk about that a bit and what's your sort of best tip for lead generation.
1: Yeah. So, Legion starts by defining the target. So this is asking your teenage kid, what are the qualifications for somebody you might want to marry someday, right? Before they fall in love with that person. And so you have this very specific goal. So maybe that looks like, all right, they have to have used a firm like yours before, or like mine before. They need to be big enough, but not too big. They need to start with strategy. They need to have had budget allocated, even if they won't tell me how much it is. There needs to be some impending thing that means this is important to them, some event or some merger or whatever it is. So you define what your ideal client is, okay, so that you're not talking yourself out of this. Then you want to be very public about that, so public that imagine a prospect comes to your website and self-select themselves either in or out of the running before they ever speak to you. They ought to be so specific about what you're looking for in a Mm -hmm. client. And then you want to say, okay, Based on all of this criteria, how many opportunities do I need in a year? And for a typical agency, they need to land a new client every two to three months. If it's big enough, that means they probably need to have three times that number of fantastic conversations. But whatever those lead gen choices are, they should flow from somebody who is viewed as an expert. Experts don't pick up the call, the phone, and cold call people normally. Every once in a while, they might mm-hmm. do that. They don't send an employee out on the street with a sandwich board side on. They wow. are very much like your regular emails. Are not they don't come across as selling, Josh selling people. Yeah. They're more like here's something useful for you. And by the way, if you need more help, I'm sure you figured out that you could call me. That's mm-hmm. more the that's more the feel of. Legion. So it's a long, slow, glorious play where you feel like you're helping all of these prospects, most of whom will never hire you, and you're totally fine with that.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting that you use my newsletter as an example. First of all, thank you for that. That's exactly how it has worked for me, right? My newsletter is the engine of my entire business all my clients basically come through my newsletter or word of mouth from other clients who had come through the newsletter. And yet I hardly ever mention my services. I hardly ever, the newsletter is not really, I'm not pitching my stuff all the time in in the newsletter. And it does exactly what you said, it generates leads. But the other thing that's really interesting is I've noticed from very early on that a client who reads my newsletter becomes a way better client then someone oh, who maybe yeah. hadn't read my newsletter it becomes this filter because they get from reading my newsletter, what I'm about, how I think about things. And we're way more likely to match than somebody who really didn't read my newsletter, but somebody recommended me to them and said, Oh, go call Josh. And that can work as well. But it is interesting. I've noticed it's such a, it's, it works not only as lead generation, but a fantastic filter. Uh, for who's going to be a good client and not. And I'm sure you find the same with your podcast and your books and everything else. There's one more thing about lead generation that I'd love if you could just talk about quickly. In your book, you talk about from the beginning sort of identifying, is the market big enough or right size for you? And I think you used a combination of numbers. Could you just talk a little about that, how you think about market size or how people can analyze that?
1: Yeah, because so you're going through this positioning exercise and you land on something that feels right. And then the next thing you do instinctively is, okay, is there anybody else out here who's going to be a competitor? You can't find one and you get all excited about, oh my God, we can own this thing. That's not, that should not be your response. Whatever your positioning option is, you should find at least a certain number of existing competitors unless you're first to the market, but it's pretty unlikely. So around mm-hmm. 10 is, is at least 10. And then you should find a certain amount of opportunity. So if you can't find at least a couple of thousand addressable prospects that need what this positioning promises, it's probably not going to be viable. Because in the professional services space, you can't assume you're going to lock up more than about 1% of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So if there's 2,000 addressable prospects, that gives you 20 clients. You're going to cycle those over time. You might want to reach up to a higher 10,000 prospects and you could have more than 10 competitors, but 10 competitors, 10,000 prospects. It's a beautiful picture right there.
0: Yeah, that's great. Cool. So let's get to the second question, even though I know I've asked you several already, but the second question I want to ask you. So in your book, The Business of Expertise, you talk about all the ways in which consultants or service providers devalue their own work and offers. And I was wondering if you could share some of the traps people fall into, signs that people are devaluing their work and how they can avoid doing that. Because this is something that I see all the time. And the simplistic way is everyone's like, oh, you're not charging enough. Charge, Charge a little more than you're comfortable with. But how do you help somebody recognize and what are the mistakes in terms of people devaluing their own work?
1: Yeah, there's probably two dozen of them, but where it starts to show up at the beginning is really me looking at how they prospect, how they conduct this sales conversations, and if they feel like this is a fragile process, that's a bad sign, right? They feel like, oh, I can't press too far on this, or I'm going to make an exception on my terms right here, or, um, yeah, we can do that extra thing, right, instead of Mm -hmm. just understanding that, listen, you know what you're doing. You have discovered how this works really well. And now you're so not confident that you're going to back off on that. And that's not only good, it's not good for you. It's not good for them because you know what it takes to do great work. So it's that not monitoring scope creep, just giving on, Oh, can you make this presentation again? Because this person couldn't be here or There's just, it's death by a thousand cuts. It's usually not one Mm -hmm. big thing. It's just this sense that, oh, this is fragile. If I do, this is going to go away. That's what I see first and most often.
0: Yeah, and so much of that, I think, is rooted in confidence or lack of confidence and insecurity. So what would you say to somebody, you know, because lots of people struggle with that, right? Whether it's imposter syndrome or insecurity about their own thing. I think it's problematic in anything that anyone does. But it's especially problematic when people are coming to you to be an expert Mm -hmm. and your insecurity is undercutting your own positioning or you need them. They want someone who's bringing confidence and expertise to the table. And if your insecurity is undercutting all that, how do people overcome that sort of insecurity or lack of confidence?
1: It seems like the answer I'm going to give is probably not one you're expecting, but or your listeners are expecting. Mm -hmm. I think the key is to not... Be driven by this crushing need to feed the machine so if you have a certain size firm of six people or 60 people or whatever and you feel the pressure to close this new business you're going to overinvest in the sale you're gonna do all kinds of silly things even though it's super uncomfortable to think about you probably ought to reduce your capacity so that you don't feel this need to feed the machine in a crushing way if you if it's just you working and you're afraid you're going to starve unless you land this thing, then just lower your assumptions. Maybe you're just now a half time advisor and you go get a half time job somewhere because this gap between your capacity and your opportunity has to be substantial because this represents your ability to say no. And once you lose that, then you panic in the stale and it shows up in all kinds of ways.
0: Yeah. I think the other piece of this devaluing your own work is how to value your work in the first place. And I think that's another thing that people really struggle with, right? Is they go, okay, I'm an expert in X, Y, and Z, and people are going to hire me and I'm going to consult with them with a weekly call or whatever it is. How do you, and I guess this gets into pricing a little bit as well, but how do they set an initial value of what their work or their expertise is worth? What do you, what tips do you have for that?
1: Yeah. And if you're trying to establish that at the boundary where this prospect becomes a client, it's almost too late. You need to establish that value before they ever come to you so that that doesn't come up. Going back to something you said earlier about the difference between somebody who's been consuming your content and somebody who hasn't. Oh my God, I felt the same way. In fact, I'll always ask somebody on the phone, like, how did we get connected? Did you like... And if they haven't read a book or they haven't read the emails or whatever, oh no, now they're thinking of me as this undifferentiated expert and I'm gonna have to d- d- define my value, right? But in the end, what you're looking for, you're never trying to convince somebody of the value. What you're trying to do is to figure out what how they perceive the value. You're never afraid of the truth. And if you're not afraid of the truth, the sooner you hear it, the better. And if there's any confusion or hesitancy on their part, bam, get out of there and just don't even, don't try to convince them of that.
0: Yeah, and I think also along those lines, that's where also whether it's a newsletter or podcast or videos or content or speaking or whatever it is, I think the getting to a place where the difference between I want to hire a consultant or I want to hire a web designer versus I want to hire you shifts the whole perce- that whole perception of value. If you can differentiate yourself through a variety of other things so that they're you're not just another web designer or whatever it is right and I talk to people right. all the time and look at their websites and look at their stuff and I'm like I see so often people talking about and how good their work is but like to me like that's a baseline right you're not the if you're a web designer let's say or a consultant you're not the only good consultant. Out there, right. really, it's not a question of convincing people you're good. It's a question of giving them a reason to choose you as opposed to all the other options mm-hmm. that are good. And right? they should, and I think,
1: they should yeah, see that. They should see that in your materials. Should they? They should feel almost uncomfortable. It's, oh my God, they, this yep. person has a camera in my office. And then if it, if there's a conversation, and there probably should only be one or two. That's enough to figure this out. They ought to feel so understood because you have seen this so many times right that's what mm-hmm. positioning delivers to you positioning delivers to you a focus focus delivers pattern matching and that pattern matching communicates value to the prospect because they realize oh my god this person really gets me they understand my world
0: yeah great yeah. so the third question i want to ask you is actually a hypothetical scenario that i'm curious to get your advice on so Let's say, hypothetically, I'm a social media consultant. I have a few clients. Some are sort of one-off projects. Some are recurring, maybe monthly retainer stuff. I'm doing okay. My business is okay, but I'm not killing, not exactly killing it. I'm doing a variety of different types of stuff. So I'm doing some social media strategy. I'm doing some day-to-day social media management. I'm doing some Facebook ads. Overall, I feel like things are okay, but they could be going better. And But I'm really not sure what to do or what to stop doing. So what would you suggest I do over the course of the next couple months? Like, where do I start? How do I look at where I'm at and try to figure out a plan to move forward to to improve my situation?
1: Yeah. So... The answer ultimately is going to be tighter positioning, but how do Mm -hmm. you arrive at that decision? And this is where it can be really, don't treat this as a nasty thing to do. It's really fun. It's really fun. Mm -hmm. Think of it that way. What I would do is I would go to some big whiteboard or whatever, and I would write down all the clients I've worked with over the last few years and then chart the degree to which I made money. I really moved the needle on behalf of the client. And then if you want to add a third one, I really enjoyed the work, right? Then do that one day. The next day, come back and say, what's the pattern here? Oh, if I have a client that has a broad presence across four or five social media channels, I really move the needle or, you know what, I'm amazing in Facebook. So you make this decision where you narrow down your impact so that you have more and more of those I made a difference, I made money, I enjoyed the client relationship. That becomes more of a public funneling. You can still accept work outside of that, but publicly you're looking for this. So you're just saying, listen, I I could work for anybody, but if I'm really gonna move the needle and be profitable, I need to do this. So you just start to look for those patterns because your positioning is gonna emerge from something you've already Mm -hmm. been doing. And think of it in two categories. So think of it as what you're doing or who you're doing it for. Tight positioning answers both of those questions together now and one can be very narrow. So you could do lots of you could do only a very specific thing for lots of different clients or you could do lots of whatever a client needs, but only for very specific clients. So you tie those things together and figure out where the pattern is, where something emerges as more effective in your work.
0: That's great. I think that's
1: really, really
0: helpful. Once someone does that, so they do that thinking through and they go, okay, here's really where I want to go. I'm at here doing all these different things. I want to narrow down. This is where I want to go. What is then the next step? Is it, do they change sort of their messaging, like little things, their bio, their website? Do they start focusing all the messaging on that narrower niche? Do they start only creating content about that narrower niche? Like how do they go from, okay, I know this is where I want to go, but I'm kind of known for these different things to different people and whatever. What are those sort of first steps to do they stop talking about the other stuff? Do they stop taking clients that don't fit that narrow thing? What does that sort of evolution look like to get there?
1: Yeah. So it has to be public, first of all. So the positioning is just nonsense work unless you're going to be mm-hmm. public about it. Right. But what, then what happens when you become public about it? If... You have enough clients that are going to fit the new positioning and the ones who don't aren't going to really care that much, then just rebrand publicly. And now this becomes your entire focus for the work that you look for, not the work that you accept. So you can still accept things out there. You're just not going to tell anybody about it, right? (laughs) But if the new positioning is a little bit riskier and narrower, and you only have two or three clients who really fit the new thing then just create a sub brand, like a different website, not a different corporation or anything separate sub brand, but you don't want two marketing plans. So in most cases, nobody's had a marketing plan at all. They've just let both come across. So we only want to create one marketing plan. We have this generalist firm that you've been doing okay for all these years anyway, that's going to continue. All this work will still get referred to you. But now our new marketing plan is going to be focused just on this and you can still accept stuff for a while. Usually it lasts Mm -hmm. for about a year and a half, but eventually you're gonna see the distinction between the work you do that is regular and based in deep expertise, and you're gonna see how much more satisfying that is. And this work over here, you're gonna say, oh, like I'm gonna have to say no to this right now. She would have said yes to it a year and a half ago because it was money. Now you're thinking, man, I've tasted the difference between just doing good work and doing amazing work, and I only want to do amazing work anymore yeah
0: have you ever I'm curious if you if you have any experience with this or what you would say, let's say there's somebody who they're providing a, B and C service to a client on an ongoing basis. they've decided they want to shift, and they really only want to do A anymore, just in general, right They don't want to do B and C anymore. Um, but they like working with this client. It's been good, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any tips or advice of, do they go to that client and say, hey, I'm shifting away from doing B and C. I'd love to keep doing A for you, but can we sort of restructure that? Any thoughts on how to approach that conversation or if they should? I think they
1: absolutely should approach it. And I think the way you suggest it, the way it would unfold would be exactly right. Mm-hmm. Experts are not afraid of somebody else dancing with whoever they brought to the party. So you, it can work really well. Maybe the client needs to build that internal capability and you help them do that, or maybe you just refer them to somebody else who's really good. I think experts are very comfortable being choosy about the stuff they do. And then not just saying no, but actually helping the client find the right solution with Mm. somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, if. I'd like to do this when I'm having a call with a prospect where they're obviously thinking about hiring me. And at some point they'll call, and say, well, who else are you thinking of? Like, what? who mm-hmm. else are you talking to? That tells me where I am in this pantheon. But also, if they don't know of anybody else to speak with and I'm not positive that it's a fit to work with me, then I'll say, hey, you really ought to talk with such and such, right? Or I will may give them two other names and say, I want to make sure it's a fit. They'll often come back to me, but if they find a fit somewhere else, then it's a win-win for everybody.
0: Yeah. We're going to wrap up, but I just had a question, like a really basic question pop into my head that maybe even should have been the first thing I asked you, but I'm just curious. How do you define what an expert is?
1: Yeah. An expert. Now we could talk, if I was in the construction industry, that definition would be very different, right? But Mm the world that I occupy, an expert is someone who others want to pay for their thinking regularly. So it's not so much they're doing, it's their thinking. And there is a marketplace demand that consistently wants to know what somebody thinks about something. That's an expert.
0: That's great. David, thank you so much for coming on here. This was awesome. I'm sure people are gonna love it. Tell people where they can get more of you, where they can connect with you, all of that kind of stuff. Where should they go?
1: Sure, so probably the weekly email would probably be the place to start, it's free at davidcbaker.com. Great. Thanks for having uh,
0: me. Yeah, no, absolutely. For me, again, my newsletter, for fortheinterested.com slash subscribe. do a series of workshops called Skill Sessions. You can check those out at joshspector.com slash sessions. If you'd like to hire me, I do coaching and consulting, joshspector.com slash consulting. I'm on Twitter all the time, at jspector. And if you would like to come on the show and ask me three questions, go to joshspector.com slash questions to submit them. Thanks, everyone, for listening. David, thank you again. I will see everyone next week. Have a great week.
1: Thank you.